Welcome to Statistically Insignificant, a sleep aid for children and adults alike, with visual effects. My name is Tess, my pronouns are she and they. With me is Bart. Hi Bart. Hey, how's it going? I go by he and him, and uh, since the last episode, I've read a very persuasive article about the wokeness of Osama bin Laden, so I've decided to join (laughs) (laughs) Al-Qaeda. The woke Al-Qaeda, yes. Yeah. I'm sure they're doing great things for the human rights of the minorities under their uh, control at the moment. Yeah, no sectarianism at all. They're environmentalists, I'm led to believe. Oh, really? (laughs) Amazing. They'll be uh, divesting from coal (laughs) in the near future, I'm sure. Indeed. So I have had a couple of questions about our respective backgrounds since the first episode came out just prior to this being uh, recorded. As prior listeners may have noticed, I am the person with the stats background. I have a bachelor's degree in maths and stats with honours, and I'm currently doing postgraduate research on an ecology project, which is basically statistical and mathematical modelling. I also teach undergraduate statistics and quantitative sociology, as I have another degree in sociology and linguistics. Basically, I am an insufferable nerd. Bart is here to suffer me. <laughs> yes, so uh, my background is actually in literature. I'm a postie for uh, work. And, ah, um, a, a true man of letters, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm a voracious reader of uh, history and novels, but I don't know anything about maths. It's, it's a good way to be. It's potentially less anxiety <laughs> and existential dread inducing. Uh, you'd be surprised. Yes, but you don't have to worry about uh, whether or not numbers are real, (laughs) in both a literal and a metaphorical sense. The other thing I'd say is that I'm an amateur writer, so at some point I might be plugging writing that I've done for different places. I have read some of Barr's work and it's quite amusing, actually. (laughs) Or at least it makes me laugh, and given that uh, whether or not I have a sense of humour is a question for another time, but... (laughs) Certainly it does evoke some emotion in the reader. This week we're going to be talking about building statistics, and we're going to use a case study of COVID resilience. In statistics, there is actually a lot of freedom. You can invent whatever way of measuring things you like, up to some basic principles of maths anyway. However, if you try to use that statistic, you then have to make the argument for why it is useful, relevant, and valid. In that spirit, We're going to look at a statistic that Bloomberg data analysts cooked up in order to rank different countries on how good a place they are to live during the COVID pandemic. And oh boy, are we going to talk about ideology and how that influences (laughs) the choice of metrics. Hell yeah, I'm excited. Oh, it's so much fun. This material comes from a series of articles which are basically updates of the one statistic over the past 10 months as the rankings changed over time. They are broadly titled COVID Resilience Ranking. Here is the current headline from the 26th of August, the best and worst places to be as Delta Rex reopening plans. Now, not every country on the world is in this list. Instead, countries with the 53 biggest economies are. Seems relevant right off the bat. Yeah, they specifically say this is for brevity and relevance, which is an interesting choice. They limited the statistic to economies valued at more than 200 billion US based on International Monetary Fund and UN valuation. Can you live in Raytheon or Amazon? (laughs) I don't know if you'd want to, to be honest. This is a pretty arbitrary boundary. If they had lowered the boundary to US 100 billion, it would be 66 rather than 53 countries. It may well be that the statistics they used weren't available for a bunch of countries which they would have included in that lower threshold. But on the other hand, if they dropped the threshold to 100 billion, they'd also have to include Cuba. So who can say? This overall ranking is a combination of 12 different statistics which cover three broad areas. Progress towards reopening, which is an interesting decision to include given that the pandemic is still very much chugging along. Actual COVID status at the current time, and a grab bag of things that they broadly title quality of life. There may in fact be some tension between these, but we'll get to that when we look at them in detail. Sorry, how do you statistically analyze like roadmap to reopening or whatever? Oh, we'll get there. And uh, (laughs) their choices are very, very interesting in that respect. Okay, cool. (laughs) Data sources range from Bloomberg's own research through data from the UN and the International Monetary Fund to a handful of universities and even a few other companies. The 12 different statistics are combined to give an overall ranking that gets updated periodically as time moves on. There are two aspects to this that we are going to look at. The first of which is, what do you include? This is the 12 statistics. The second 
is how are they combined? And that does actually potentially change how you interpret the overall ranking as well as reflect or not relationships between the different metrics. Let's go through the 12. First up, number of people covered by vaccines. This is part of their reopening statistic. It is calculated based on the number of each vaccine type which have been distributed to the population, assuming that each person got the full coverage. So if you have a population of 2 million people and have distributed 3 million Pfizer vaccines, this requires two doses each. So your 3 million Pfizer's, Pfizer doses represents 1.5 million people fully vaccinated. So Wait, is that calculated at the point of Pfizer sales? What? No, it's calculated at the point of distribution. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, so it's people getting it in the arm. Yeah. This would be, of your 2 million people, 75% vaccine coverage, even if it's actually 100% of people with a first dose and 50% of people with the second. So there is a slight disconnect between what has actually happened on the ground and the percentage coverage that this statistic represents. Yeah, okay. If it's a vaccine that only requires one dose, then each vaccine administered counts as a person who is fully vaccinated. Yeah. So because this matters when it comes to computing the result at the end, this is a number where bigger is better. Yes. When considering this metric, it is super important to remember just how much poor countries have been screwed over by wealthy ones when it comes to vaccine supply. Not only have places like India and South Africa been prohibited from producing many vaccines outside of intellectual property constraints, because pharmaceutical companies are terrified that doing that would threaten their profits and set a precedent for such things, wealthy countries have been gobbling up supplies. The US, for example, has been criticised by, among others, Medicine Sans Frontières for securing 1.2 billion doses of vaccine by May this year, which is half a billion more than they would need to give every person living there two shots. The people, it's, yeah, like, it's not necessarily surprising that the dominant world power would do this, but on the other hand, it's kind of shitty. Yeah, no, and, it's, <laughs> as you say, it's not surprising, but it's yeah. kind of funny when, it, when you lay it out like that. Well, it's also, long term, it is not the optimum strategy. Because as we have seen with Delta, places that are poorer, like India, I mean Indonesia even, and have these, these variants popping up because they have such rampant reproduction of the virus, turn around and bite in the ass the rich countries that are not allowing them to protect themselves. Yeah. So realistically what is happening here is that profits for big pharmaceutical companies are being protected by intellectual property, everyone else is being stuffed. Especially India is the most uh, dramatic example because it, they a lot of the vaccines are made there. They're just not allowed to be made outside. They're just not allowed the, to make. Yeah, they're just not allowed to make more yeah. than they are more than they are permitted to for export or some local black purchasing. Yeah, and they could do it. I mean, one of the big things with the um, the Chinese vaccine that came out, Sinovac, I think Sinovax, I think it's called is that they have far fewer restrictions on who can make it and the supply. Cuba is also doing this. I mean, they've had a couple of vaccine, uh, can well, candidate vaccines come out. I think the rec most recent one, which is still undergoing testing, is proving to be quite effective. Yeah. But because of the um, US trade embargo on Cuba, they can't properly supply themselves even, or the rest of the world, because they can't import basic materials that they need to make at large scale. Yes. Also, um, the people who are complaining about a vaccine apartheid somewhere like Australia, where those who refuse to be vaccinated don't get full freedoms as we open up after Delta, they are willfully ignoring the very real structural inequalities built around what winds up being skin colour on some level between somewhere like Australia and even Indonesia or places in the rest of the world where a lot of poor brown people don't have access to vaccines. Yes. Also, apartheid I, is an incredibly offensive word to use in that in that. I uh, know, context. but they're still doing <laughs> Oh my god. Like, we had, um, so this is 19th of September when we're recording this, and yesterday we had anti-lockdown protests in Sydney and Melbourne, and Brisbane, I think, as well. And like, I can understand having problems with the way that lockdown has been implemented here because compared to last year we have fewer financial resources and support. So people, it's tough for people, that it's more tough than it was this time last year. 
But that's not what they're fighting against. They're not demanding that the government pay them to stay home. They're demanding that they can go and cough into each other's mouths in public. <laughs> I don't know. You can see how people fall into this trap, though, because... But at the same time, it is... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, There would be far less momentum for these anti-lockdown protests if people weren't desperate. Absolutely. And that was a choice that was made here. Like, the government, federal government in particular, made the choice to not provide people the support they need to stay home comfortably. Yes. And uh, because we've kind of got into it already, speaking of lockdown severity, there is a statistic in this metric which is a measure of lockdown severity. So this one comes out of uh, Oxford University. It is effectively a, um, a a statistic that represents some idea of how how restricted your daily life is. So in this case, bigger is worse in contrast to the previous one. It's an interesting one to include here because hard lockdowns are exclusively positioned as a negative because of the disruption of daily life as opposed to an indication that a country is willing and able to work together to some degree to get the virus under control. Yes. Australia and New Zealand, for example, have been quite tightly locked down, particularly in some Australian states like um, Victoria and New South Wales where we live. It's hard. It's hard as hell. I about wrote a piece, in fact, about the difficulty of being a postie working during the pandemic. And I have had to go on to psychiatric medication because my bad brain got very bad indeed. But I am not at all convinced that this is an overall negative. I would much rather live under this than be forced open the way that Bangladesh is at the moment, in the midst of their most severe Delta variant outbreak, because capitalists want workers to go back to producing value. And if they get sick and die, that's just the cost of doing business. In this regard, we haven't really as a culture got past the sort of libertarian uh, outbreak of the kind of 2000s that still kind of <laughs> infects the culture, even though most people now would disavow it apart from the more hardcore elements of it. Yeah, your freedom to go and die because you would starve if you don't work is not really a freedom in my eyes. Mm. And certainly this idea that a hard lockdown is inherently bad doesn't actually correspond to an indication of quality of life, which is... This, this metric nominally is attempting to represent some aspect of quality of life, even though it's under the reopening tag, because people's, how disrupted people's lives are. But your life would be pretty damn disrupted by catching COVID at work because your boss forces you to go in and make money for him and then being hospitalized or die. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <It's>, uh... <laughs> Next, we have a couple of travel indicators. This flight capacity is direct is a direct comparison of the flight bookings in a four-week period now, as opposed to the same period in 2019. It includes domestic and international flights. Wait, so they're including just how many flights are being booked? Not even whether you can get a flight, but... Oh, well, like, whether the flight actually happens. Oh, okay. If uh, you have increased domestic flights, but the international ones are shut down, it won't look like such a large reduction in air travel because it's just the total number instead of the, like, it doesn't split international and domestic. Yeah, okay. So this is also a measure of this bit here. This is a measure of the reduction. Yeah. So if you have, if there were, say, 1,000 flights in 2019 for this period, but 200 flights in... 2021 right this is an 80 percent reduction yeah so high is bad yeah so this is another big is bad yeah really this is a measure of the mobility of the middle and upper classes both for work and for holidays it's pretty fraught for them to treat unrestricted travel as always a positive too like hawaii at the moment is being hammered with covid cases from travelers from the mainland u.s and a lot of people there are furious at the government's unwillingness to restrict tourists. Yes. Last for the reopening statistics is vaccinated travel routes. This is again a metric of travel, this time explicitly international travelers. So the ability of residents to return to a home country does not count towards this. Also, quarantine requirements are included. A route that requires travelers quarantine is counted as a half open, while quarantine fee travel counts as fully open. Outbound and inbound also count separately. So if we have country A and country B, we have flights going from A to B and flights going from B to A. 
if country A requires that passengers from country B quarantine, so this route down here has a quarantine, it counts as half, whereas if B does not make that same requirement of passengers for A, the route out of A would count as a full. So no quarantine here. So this would be one rather than a half. Right. This is another one where big is better. So this is a count of the available routes. Yes. So bigger, well, according to them anyway. All right. So that's our reopening statistics. That one. Now we have. Sorry. Yeah, go just on. Just that one. I don't get how that, isn't this supposed to be the quality of life of the place that you're actually in? How does international, your ability to internationally travel <laughs> so these are a measure of how open your country is. Oh, okay. these are, these are, yeah, so these are the um, metrics for reopening the country, which, as mentioned, is an interesting way to go because whether or not you should reopen is not necessarily dealt with here. Yeah, that <laughs> seems flawed. <laughs> Gotta <Yeah>. say. <laughs> Let's call it problematic, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> In contrast to these, now we have metrics about the actual, what's actually happening with COVID itself. This first one, pretty straightforward, is a number of cases per 100,000 people in the past month. This here, the per 100,000 people, is important because it means that it is relative to the size of the population. Yeah. This makes it far easier to compare the US to like a small country like Australia. Yes. One other note for this, this is detected cases. If you have COVID, but you don't have a positive test, you don't count in this number. This can be an issue if you live somewhere where testing is limited. Yeah. And this is another one where big is bad. Yes. Um, it's the assumption that uh, countries with bigger economies will have uh, higher testing capabilities. Yeah, so one of the... Um, one of the statistics we'll get to is about the positive test rate. Yeah. And that does kind of balance that testing availability to potential outbreaks. But in general, um, bigger economies may or may not correspond to uh, like greater availability of tests because it also depends on what your population size is relative to the size of the economy. I mean, yeah. India, for example, is a huge country. I think it's one and a half billion people. Yes. And it has a much larger economy than some that a lot of countries with smaller populations but people's access to testing within that within india's healthcare system may be quite restricted depending on where you are yes next is the uh three month fatality rate which looks at how many covid patients have died as a result of the disease on the past three months and goes hand in hand with the next one which is the total deaths per 1 million people during the pandemic so far. I'm going to talk about these together because they have the same weaknesses as a measure of overall impact of the pandemic and that they only account for deaths that are attributed to COVID. If someone dies due to COVID but it wasn't identified as the cause or if someone dies due to lack of access to care because the hospitals are overrun with COVID patients those don't count towards this statistic. In episode 2, our mailbag segment was about a different statistic which can be used to quantify the amount of death that, is a, that a disaster causes, excess deaths, which compares all deaths that occur to what you would expect to see in the same time period. Excess deaths is not included in this resilience metric, though I would say it's a good one to include if you are building such a thing. Yes. This is also not really a total measure of burden from disease either, because it doesn't look at the hospitalization rate, it doesn't look at the people who are dealing with long-term disability as a result of having long COVID, or the injuries that result from being hospitalized due to COVID. Yeah. Didn't uh, New York cover up a whole bunch of COVID deaths as well? Oh, Oh yes, in the, I think, nobody quote me on this, despite this being in a public record uh, podcast, <laughs> I think there was an extra, like, 15,000 deaths or something were uncovered in aged care homes specifically. Yeah. Okay, and this is another one where uh, big is bad, as you might imagine. Checks out. Yep. The last COVID statistic is the percentage of COVID tests that come back positive. This is included because you don't expect every person who has COVID to go out and get tested particularly asymptomatic cases, but if a higher proportion of the tests you do actually come back positive, you can reasonably expect that there are more people in the community who have not been tested but are infected. In Australia, or in New South Wales, I think the positive, let's see, we're doing about 100,000 tests per day, so New South Wales, 
has about 100k tests per day, and we're getting approximately uh, 1,200 cases. Yeah. So that's about a 1.2% positive rate. You can compare that to, um, I think, during the during the massive um, wave in the US over Christmas, I think, and into the start of this year, they were having like 30% positive rate, uh, test rates in some of the worst hit areas. And you can see that those two, uh, one represents a much more widespread outbreak than the other. Yes. Could that also be indicative of more people getting tested for at lower thresholds, if you know what I mean? For... More people getting tested, yes, yeah. certainly. So, like, availability of tests, cost of tests, um, and for a while, like, particularly at the very start of the pandemic, getting tests was a long and burdensome experience. Yes. Like, it would take a couple of days to get test results, whereas now, like, I think the rapid testing can be, like, an hour or two. I think I got my test on the Tuesday and I got the results on the Friday, so... Yeah, so the, Australia hasn't really rolled out the rapid testing kits that you see elsewhere. Because, yeah. like, my brother li lives in Germany, and if they are traveling, which is very strange <laughs> that they'll just hop on a plane and go for a holiday, oh, yeah. but whatever. Uh, <laughs> they have these, I think, uh, PCR tests where they can do it themselves and get a result back within a few hours. Yeah, okay. So this is another big is bad. This is can kind of be a proxy for availability of testing, I guess. Yeah. And in that respect, it's use it's really useful to have in there. All right, we're two thirds of the way through our statistics. <laughs> I told you this would be a bit of a long haul. But now we are getting into quality of life statistics. These are of particular interest to me. This first one, community mobility, measures how much people are working at the office for people who do work at an office and shopping compared to uh, what was happening prior to the pandemic. Notice that this was not included in the reopening section for some reason. Yeah. Realistically though, one has to ask whose quality of life this actually represents. An awful lot of office jobs are now work from home with the hearty enthusiasm of the workers, but frustration from some of their bosses perhaps, and more importantly, the desperate wailing of commercial landlords whose properties and rents are rapidly decreasing in value. Yes. I genuinely don't think that office work is going to return to the same situation as pre-pandemic because for so many people, it's much better to work from home. It's not universal. Uh, I, at my re job being a research student at a university, I do much better when I'm not working from home, but uh, I am, I think, an outlier. And my partner, by preference, works from home because it takes... Oh, what, 10 hours a week travel? He doesn't have to do it yes. anymore? I can see some political so, disadvantages to it in terms of uh, unionization and things like that. It's much easier if you're all in the same building. But Yeah, um, I to some extent, well, unionization in office jobs is pretty um, basement levels anyway. Yeah, sure. So, to, yeah, it's, it's a hard one because getting union penetration into those sorts of environments is difficult, particularly in tech. Yes. Uh with the overwhelming number of libertarians and the overwhelming prevalence of human resource departments which say, oh, you don't need a union, you have us, whose interests are to protect the company, not no, you. No, of course. But, uh, but also you have uh, jobs that are definitely um, working class in terms of call center work, data entry, like oh, yeah. um, that kind of uh, thing, which um, you might have a higher chance. Of. They don't quite sniff the ideology in the same way as your better paid tech workers yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, and also like call centers are so shit an environment to be working in that like there's a very a potential solidarity between workers, which is lost in if you get so alienated that you're working from home on top of having all the surveillance and all the like relentless um, oppression of being in a call yes, center. Yes, but I don't know. It's something I think about when these discussions come up. Yeah, uh, call. <laughs> I have always found the. Um, the idea of office jobs being inherently middle class, I think that's a tool to, um, that's a tool of division and, and quite purposeful, I think, in a lot of Absolutely. cases. Absolutely. Oh, the other thing is that retail space activity in this doesn't account for online shopping either. So what this is, this isn't so much a measure of economic activity, it's really a measure of how well landlords are doing. Yes. 
landlords and also your kind of uh, your petty bourgeois as well in terms of like people who own specialty shops and that kind of thing, which people when they order um, online are. Yeah, but a lot of those are now order online anyway. Yeah, okay. yeah so um, I guess it really does depend, but uh, specialty shops and like I think have had more pressure in the last five or ten years to go online. I mean, Pinterest and things like yeah, that. Yeah, true. Etsy as well. Yeah. Well, in so many respects, that has been a boon to them in the way that a shopfront is not, because the amount you pay in rent to have a shopfront for your small boutique shop versus the reach you get from having a good website, it's worlds yes. different. According to Bloomberg, incidentally, this is one where big is good. <laughs> okay. Next up, this is the projected percentage gross domestic product change for 2021. We don't have time to go in depth on how GDP is calculated in this episode. I will do that sometime because, oh boy, is it an interesting ideological construction. What's important what, for from this- from the IMF? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> what, what's really important here is that this is a forecast. It's not actual numbers. It's what the IMF anticipates will happen. And that may or may not be connected to reality, depending on how optimistic or pessimistic the outlook is. Yeah. The other thing is that GDP is somewhat disconnected from living conditions, let's yes. say. It's most easily understood as a metric for transaction value when something is bought by the final user. So if I sell you, if you're a, like, if you're in a bookstore, I'm a publisher, I sell you a book for $50 and you sell it to somebody else for $70 who keeps it, that counts as $70 towards GDP. Yeah. So this is a measure of capitalist economic activity. From the IMF's definition, not all productive activity is included in GDP. For example, unpaid work, such as that performed in the house or by volunteers, and black market activities are not included because they are difficult to measure and value accurately. Yeah, because like, we've never tried to value work at home and the feminist movement has never had anything to say about this. <laughs> that means, for example, that a baker who produces a loaf of bread for a customer would contribute to GDP, but would not contribute to GDP if he baked the same loaf of bread for his family, although the ingredients he purchased would be counted. Yes. So there's an awful lot of care work going on during the pandemic which doesn't count as value produced, even if it would be if someone was hired to do that care work. And this is a particular point of disconnect here when using this sort of yeah. a metric. This is also a metric that disproportionately favours the quality of life of people who have money. Yes. Instead, for example, you could consider whether the average income for a household in the area compares to the cost of living in that same area, and whether there is government support for people. It is very noticeable that nowhere in this metric, none of these statistics have any way of valuing government's material support. Not one. Not one actually looks at the income of people on the ground. <laughs> The ideology of Bloomberg is very, very clear to me in this. Yeah, well, it is Bloomberg. This statistic was shown to me a while ago because the person who found it, I think in March 2021, showed it to me on the basis that I would scream with rage as well. <laughs> and I did. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh, then I said, I'm going to make an episode <laughs> about this when I do my podcast. God damn it. So here we are. Oh, this is another one where big is considered yes. good. All right. Second last one. This is called universal healthcare coverage. It is a combination of 23 other statistics, and we don't have time to dig into all of those. So uh, I, will ref I will put a citation in the comments for this paper. Uh, it's either The Lancet. What is interesting about it is that in the original paper, this is described as what would be considered universal, uh, all people receiving quality health services without incurring financial hardship. And that last little bit is really interesting, because if we look, compare Australia, which has a uh, score of 89 in this, yeah. and the US, which has a score of 82, this doesn't necessarily correspond to what people actually experience in terms of the availability of healthcare. Yes. This is also 2019 data. So this is a metric for the healthcare system prior to the pandemic. Cool. It's, yeah, uh, th their, their argument for including this is that 
A better healthcare system prior to the pandemic means that people would be better able to access care during the pandemic, which theoretically is fine, except that it isn't really able to take into account the full user experience of healthcare, particularly in the US, which is just so horrendous at point of use, so prohibitively expensive. This, These numbers here, they are not quite percentage. But also, even with countries with universal healthcare, like the UK, you saw a massive problems in the NHS because of the pandemic directly. Yeah. Like, you would not yep. be able to access the same uh, amount of care from the NHS during the pandemic as you would before it. Yeah, so this is uh, this is not a metric which is the actual availability of care at the point of use during the pandemic. So let's consider a situation that this wouldn't cover. So let's say you have a massive wave and your hospital system is shutting down because it is being overwhelmed with cases. So let's say you have no lockdown because that would be uh, politically problematic. You have rising cases and rising deaths. So these are the three statistics that we've seen so far. Because this hospital sitting, uh, system shutting down is not actually measured by this universal healthcare coverage statistic, so it doesn't count. Yes. No lockdown counts as a positive, according to this, uh, this ranking system. Rising cases is a negative, rising deaths is a negative. But this bit doesn't count. Yes. And that's a real problem Absolutely. here. Absolutely. So yeah, this one, this is a very, this is a particularly frustrating inclusion to me because the uh, metric for quality of care has problems because it is not really able to capture what the US, for example, has as shortcomings in its care system. And it's not up to date. There are other ways you could do this. Like you could measure um, hospital occupation. You could measure the percentage reduction in capacity for other things, or things other than COVID, like other surgeries or whatever else. You could measure the number of people who are dying of preventable of preventable injuries or whatever because they can't get yes. access to care. All of those would be worlds better for reflecting the actual state of the healthcare system. Oh, and putting than in this. raw medical debt as well, surely would. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> come into it. Yeah, I know entirely too many Americans who are sitting on. You know, casually like a hundred thousand dollars in medical debt or so that they're just never going to be able to yeah, pay of off course. and they're just you know getting crushed by that for the rest of their lives oh yeah it's great and at long last the final statistic that goes into this ranking is the human development index that the un puts out this combines uh life expectancy at birth years of education and income per capita so in their methodology description bloomberg refers to this as wealth per capita but that's not the same thing as income the UN Development Program talks about income per capita, so this doesn't include assets that you own unless you like liquidate them effectively. So if I own a house that's worth, say, half a million yes. dollars, that doesn't count towards my income unless I'm renting it yeah, out, but it is part of my wealth. We talked also in episode two about life expectancy at birth and how that does or does not reflect the overall health of the population. Oh, but in this case, I can see why child mortality would be. I, I, <laughs> like, taking. Yeah, I mean, it's broadly, this is meant to represent the overall quality of life of a population, yeah. right? Which, okay, life expectancy and access to education, I think those are pretty fair. Income per capita is a bit tricky because it doesn't differentiate on the basis of inequality. Yeah. Like, this, if you have a community, if you have a country rather, where one person has all of the income and nobody else has anything, that is the same income per capita as a community with the same overall income that is equally yes. distributed. But one of those is actually reasonable to live in for the average <laughs> no, person. <laughs> you know? Uh, also, it, um, many Marxist-Leninist countries, for example, you are not required to pay rent or a mortgage with the income that you receive. Yeah. So that... Uh, Without taking that into account, you're also kind of not looking at the full picture of income as it's spendable. Yeah, so the idea of income per capita as a reflection of living conditions is that's not a good way to go about it realistically because it's a very kind of high level abstracted metric, yes. which is incapable of understanding what's actually going on on the ground. This is again where that absence of any metric for how the average person's living conditions work is pretty obvious here. Yes. You could include 
a, some sort of cost of living versus income metric. It's not necessarily that hard to calculate if you have an army of data analysts, as Bloomberg in fact does. <laughs> and the UN does it. Yeah, so this is another one where uh, bigger is yeah. better. Okay, did I put that on the previous one? Let's have a look. I did not. Okay, so this is another one yeah. where bigger is better. So those are our 12. Before we go into technical details of how these are combined, I'm going to list some other things that I would have included, which I haven't already talked about. I think I haven't already talked about. One of them would be financial or material support for incomes, families, or households. Basically, what is the government doing to actually make people's lives easier and more comfortable during yes. the pandemic? Because it's Bloomberg, because they are, you know, rampant capitalists and don't think governments can actually do useful things for people. Of course, they have not included this because they don't see that as a viable option for improving people's lives. Despite the fact that one of the, like, one of the best things that has happened in the countries where it has happened has been just straight up, hey, we're going to give people yes. money. Australia had um, has some limited financial support for people who whose uh, income has decreased since the pandemic started. It is more limited than it used to be, and people who do not work are getting even more screwed over than usual. Yeah, places like New Zealand had income support. The U.S. had its very paltry and extremely frustrating few thousand dollars to each individual person. Nominally better than nothing. Functionally, they just screwed people around and of gave course. them pittance. However, if Trump had written yep. two more checks, he... <laughs> I know, right? I mean, it's 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 kind of ironic to me that that he was, in some respects, not allowed yeah. to do that. <laughs> it's it's a fitting end. And and <laughs> a uh, fitting absolutely. end to a posting president. <laughs> One thing that I is not here, probably because it's hard to measure, is the number of people experiencing long COVID. We don't understand long COVID yeah. very well at all. There's very limited research that's been done on it. And I don't think I have seen a single government, like federal government level, either here or overseas, effort to actually understand the impact of long COVID in terms of like long-term disability care that's going to need to happen that did not previously. And this is something that is sorely lacking in that general analysis, but also very visibly lacking in this particular metric. Yes. It also doesn't take into account the total number of cases, which uh, even like there's that metric of the number of cases in the recent period. But if you've had a huge number of cases like a year ago, let's say three, you know, 600,000 people have died. That is a significant number of people, depending on the size of your population anyway, who are not working now, who are not contributing to the communities who are not giving care to other people that yes. they otherwise would. And that loss of people can be like, like that those deaths are counted, but the amount of time that those people who didn't die were unwell isn't really being counted towards yes. this. You can't just not take into account the full extent of it. <laughs> You're looking at one part of it. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Cause they, they have the total number of deaths, right? But they don't, people don't just die or it doesn't happen. The time spent hospitalized and the, the burden of disease on the individual yes. really does matter here. Another thing which I, I don't know how you would build a metric for this, but I think it would be possible to do is some way of measuring how fast and how thoroughly a government can respond to an outbreak or a sudden wave. So this is not necessarily doable in countries where it has been allowed to become widespread and endemic, because there's a point at which you can't control a disease like an outbreak once it's so widely spread. I mean, we're seeing this yes. in Australia at the moment. In New South Wales and Melbourne, because Delta is so much more infectious than pre other strains, we may have been able to stabilize the number of cases with extensive vaccination programs with a really hard lockdown, but that's not the same as being able to eliminate it and keep track of where cases are going and lock down yes. lines of transmission. I don't know how you would go about this, but some way to look at the speed and capacity of governments to respond to like increased cases would be really useful because the only real metric here which represents that is the severity <laughs> of lockdown metric and that's where a strong response is bad right yeah absolutely it's not necessarily a thorough representation of Certainly the situation not. on the ground let's say 
Do you have any others that you can think um, of? Not that probably wouldn't, for example, things like inequality and stuff. Um, mm. But I think that kind of is, uh, I'm not sure how helpful that is in this particular case on the graph. Well, it kind of depends on what you want to do with it. Like if your aim is to represent what the average, in quotation marks, because that's an interesting idea, what the average person experiences, then if you have like staggeringly high inequality, the average person probably has a lower quality of life than yes, they would otherwise. Sure. So in that respect, there are metrics for inequality, like the Gini coefficient and whatever. And I would be interested, I imagine it'll come out in a few years or so, to see how those metrics for inequality have changed over the last 18 months. Because I reckon in a lot of cases, like particularly in the US, inequality will have gone up. I think here as well. Yeah, inequality is already really high and a lot of very vulnerable people have been considerably more screwed over than they would have otherwise. Yes. And you also have um, a lot of people who were on, I don't like the term middle class, but let's say middle class incomes who have been yeah. dropped down to kind of raw financial support in this case, which is money that they will then go back. Whereas if you're the a shareholder in Coles, you are yes. like, <laughs> you're yeah, making gangbusters. money yeah. of this shit. So um, I can see inequality in our country coming up. Yeah, and it certainly does have a significant impact on the people who are low income or shall we say poor in general. Because yes. their health is on average worse, their ability to get healthcare is on average worse. In Australia, the fact that we have public healthcare doesn't necessarily mean that everyone can get to it. So if you're in a rural area in Australia, your access to healthcare might be quite poor because you may have to travel several hundred kilometres to get to a yes. specialist. Oh, one other thing that I forgot to put in this list, actually, in my notes. I would have included something, probably in the like financial and material support for households or whatever, some metric for how much people are protected from things that would immediately make their lives worse. Like being evicted from the rental property, for example. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, and that's something that is very definitely missing in these um, in these statistics, but um, something that makes a huge difference on the ground for people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. Now we are through that tortured slog, <laughs> let's talk about combining the metrics into a ranking. The first thing you need to do is transform each one into a state which makes it amenable to being combined. If you have one statistic where a big number is bad, such as monthly cases, and another statistic where, is a big, where a big number is good, like vaccine coverage, you can't just add those two together because the direction is going the wrong, wrong. The direction is going in different ways. Yes. Likewise, you want things to be on a similar scale. So 20 in one transformed metric means something comparable in impact to 20 on another. Per capita GDP, which is measured in tens of thousands, is difficult to compare directly to a vaccine percentage which maxes out at 100, right? Yes. So there are two versions of the same calculation depending on whether a big number is good or bad, both of which are known under the term the min-max procedure. Mm -hmm. If we have good when big, what we get is I, which is the uh, indicator value you get at the end, is equal to 100 times. Up the top, we have the value of the statistic for that particular country minus yep. the minimum value that is valid for that statistic. So if you have like percentage vaccination, for example, the minimum value that can take is 0% vaccinated. Yes. We divide that by the max possible value. So if you're vaccinated, if you're looking at vaccination rates, 100% of people is the maximum value. Yes. Minus the min value. One careful detail with this, something like percentage change in per capita GDP, theoretically that could be over 100%. So not all of these metrics necessarily have a max value. So things like your flight route capacity, theoretically there's no upper bound on how many flight routes you can have, but practically there is, right? Yes but you can still have a maximum value in the and the uh, in this in that case which would just be the highest number of uh routes in and out that a particular country has so you would treat that as the max value okay yeah yeah if bad when big we have i and we're going to put a little asterisk next to it to indicate that's a different thing which is 100 minus 
our original i, but you don't need to calculate this first, you can just do it as a slightly different computation, which is 100 times. So up here we have value minus min value, yep. down here we're going to have max value minus the actual value you observed. Yep. And down here we're going to have the same uh, thing on the bottom, which is max value minus min value. Does the line in the middle indicate a division? So yeah, so yeah, this okay, is a cool. fraction. Cool. Okay, and max is the highest possible. It may or not be actually present. So like 100% vaccination, no country has got 100% yet. But yeah. that's still the highest possible value so that it's treated as the upper threshold. Yep. And min, lowest possible. God, my handwriting is awful today. Okay, now let's have an example here. So we're going to imagine we have a... a we're going to have five possible uh, five values here. We have a minimum of one. We observe 5, 13, 23, and a max of 25, right? So yep. these are what we actually observe here. So big good is the first one. Mm -hmm. This gives us 100 times 5, which it, we're going to look at this only because, you know, um, doing more than one is going to take far too long. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so 5 minus the minimum mm -hmm. divided by the maximum minus the minimum, which is 16.6. And if big is bad, we get 100 times 25, the maximum, minus what we observed, which was 5, divided by 25 minus 1, which is 83.3. And there are repeaters on these, because uh, it winds up not being quite a nice number. Yeah. But the other thing to notice is that um, these have that i star is equal to i minus 100 relationship. Yep. So 100 minus i. Order matters when doing subtraction, guys. Uh, <laughs> <dunk. laughs> minus i. Yep. So 100 minus 16.6 repeater is 83.3. Compare this, where all of your values are below 25, to another example where we have min 1. We observe 45, 270, 541, and 1291 with a max of 2000, right? So these are orders of magnitude larger. Yes. But we'll just do the first one to compare. So good. Let's say we've observed this 270. Mm -hmm. So we do 100 times 270 minus 1 divided by 2000 minus 1, which is equal to 13.45. So you can see that it takes, it, it kind of squashes the overall size but maintains the distance between things yes and that's a, that's a really useful thing in a metric like this also to have the good and bad calculations enables you to take into account that direction of what's pos what's what's a, seen as a good thing and what's seen as a bad thing yeah once this has been done for each metric and each country, the final score for a country is the mean of each of these rescaled scores. So there were 12 statistics mm -hmm. times the sum of the i or i star values yeah. for that country, right? I really want to talk about this averaging because this hides a critical feature of the political structure at play here. Under this, each metric has the same impact on the final score. They are treated as equally important for what's going on on the ground. But that doesn't really reflect the actual relationship that each of these metrics has to the lives of everyday people. Yes. Like the profitability of commercial landlords is treated as just as important as the number of cases in the past month. Yes. Or how many people are dying. <laughs> Like it's it's this is a, a subtle mathematical detail, but it does radically change how um well in, in quite a disgusting fashion as far as I'm concerned. It radically changes the overall interpretation of these statistics. I mean what you don't include could be considered as having weight zero, but to treat even all of these as the same is just wrong. Yes. Like realistically it's just not it's not accurate or valid. And there would be a way to weight them. So what you can do uh, if we come down here, we write it again as 1 on 12 times the sum of stats, right? This is the same as 1 on 12 times I, let's call it I1 for the first statistic, plus 1 on 12 times I star 2, right? So this star indicates that it's the, the big number is bad. Yeah. 
and the two indicates it was the second statistic, right? T uh, plus one on 12 times all the rest, right? Yeah. You don't have to have one on 12 in front of each one of these. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you can, that, we call this a weight. Yeah. To make this more rigorous, let's say, you can change the weight. So what you really need is all the weights add to one. But within that, there can be any distribution of them that you like. So let's say that I think um, that I think case numbers and deaths are really, really important. I could give them a weighting of like three out of twelve. I would just then need to rescale the others to be smaller uh, numbers, oh, okay. so that yeah. you still have that adding up to one. Yeah, this is a method that's used a whole across a whole bunch of statistical things to reflect that some things have more impact than others. Yes, they. Uh, I my guess would be that part of why they didn't use this is it can be a bit difficult to explain. Another part of why is that because they have chosen some frankly very questionable statistics in the first place, this is an effort to make their ranking look objective. Yes. Because oh, we're treating everything fairly, you know, everything is equally important whether or not that actually represents the true experience of people on the ground. Yeah, for sure. So now that we've talked so much about it, let's go and have a look at a plot of some ranks over time. Okay, so this is the most recent. Uh, this was from the 26th of August. So what is interesting here to me is particularly New Zealand here, because New Zealand is now down at 29, when for a long time they're the ones up here. So this precipitous drop for New Zealand, which was been basically the f at the top of the ranking for a very long time, is because they locked down for, I can't remember how long the lockdown has gone, but they're opening up now, it's been like a few weeks, because they had Delta come in from Australia. Yes. And New Zealand has really, it's got very, very low case numbers. You know, some, because now that they actually have some stuff happening, but the this is basically a reflection of the fact that they have a lockdown going on. Yes. And like that... It's still a really good place to be living. <laughs> I, for example, I would much rather be in New Zealand than the US at the moment. Absolutely. Likewise, like the US here, I'll use a different color for this so it actually shows up. Uh, let me see if I can work. So this one here was the US's line, I believe. Yeah, so this was the US's line because it had a really shit time over Christmas last year. Yeah. It was in June this year. It was considered one. It was considered the best place to live <laughs> during the pandemic, which is basically a reflection cool, of the fact that, yeah, great work, guys. <laughs> everywhere you had basically everywhere opening up. So restrict. So that lockdown restrictions and the travel restrictions basically vanished. But people's lives weren't necessarily better. They were still getting very sick and dying. <laughs> Not quite at the rate that they had been in December, of course, or during the early part of the year. Yes. But certainly the risk was there and the effective quality of life didn't show up necessarily in the economic or movement metrics, but was very, very real for the people on the ground. Yeah. And this statistic is not able to capture that. <laughs> of course. Wonderful. Yeah. God forbid people think that the US was not a great place to be, right? <laughs> well, this is the point I kind of wanted to get to, which is that, um, so Bloomberg says selling to a kind of intelligentsia crowd. And the thing I kind of was thinking about was how to be able to do the imperialism that the West does to just extract resources and use people's labor from the third world. Everyone sort of has to be on board with the idea that the West is superior to the third world yeah. in these ways. And for most people, it's a pretty easy sell, right? Because most people, like a lot of people in my life are like, well, Australia right or wrong, even if they wouldn't say it like <laughs> that, but like, it's kind of in there, if you know what I mean. But yeah. for the kind of intelligentsia that reads Bloomberg, I don't think that necessarily holds up. But objective graphs might. It's well, okay, <laughs> but I, I contest the idea of objectivity. No, certainly. No. Yeah. Like, what if the... By really... objective graphs, it is still... A... Yeah, they're framed as being exactly, objective. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So one of the most interesting things that becomes extremely obvious when you start doing statistics rigorously is just how subjective they actually are, particularly anything that actually relates to people. Yeah. This subjective reality as opposed to objective framing is used to mislead, it's used to construct consent. 
because there is this general attitude that if you can put a number to it, that makes it somehow objective. Yes. And this flies in the face of the reality where, well, let, let's take movie reviews, right? As, or book reviews as an example. If they have a star rating associated with a review, that star is basically the review author's vibe of the whatever. Yes. Of the media, right? Yeah. Attaching a number to the thing, I, I could produce, and uh, I could produce a numerical scale of things I get vi good vibes from or not, and I could frame it as very objective because there's a number there, right? It's, it's, it's rankable. You can tell the distance between things. Yes. But realistically, that's just my subjective opinion on them. Yeah. And this is like what we um, what we looked at last week with respect to that uh, manufacturing consent for policing, where it was asking the percentage of people who thought that violent crime was a very big problem. This is again an opinion that is wrapped up in numbers to make it look like it's measuring something that's. I I, I do think that subjective opinion can be meaningful and useful. Yes. But not if you treat it like objective reality. Absolutely, yeah. And this this COVID ranking system is really quite similar to that. They have these 12 statistics, some of which are more reflective than others of people's lives on the ground, like the cases per 100,000 people or deaths per million. That's like an on the ground thing that affects people's lives. The uh, profitability of commercial landlords, aside from commercial landlords, that's mostly non-issue, I guess. Yes. But it's framed as being objective and real and important and equally important to everything else, which is a political choice. It's an ideological choice. This is a constructed metric that is trying to do something to make people think that they are have better or worse lives than they actually do. Yes. Well, it's in the same way you can see it in the, um, the discipline of economics is a social science in the same way as history or literature or whatever, but it is given more weight. Yeah by the fact that it deals in numbers. Numbers. It's <laughs> it, yes, it claims to be able to measure values. Yes. So that is our COVID resilience ranking. I'm going to put a link to this article, um, this is Bloomberg article, and to the methodology article as well in the show notes. If you, dear listener, want to go and have a look at your own country or just have a squeeze at the greater detail they give on the actual events that go into this, you can do that. Oh boy. Now we can talk about our mailbag segment. This one is from you, Bart. You asked me to look into how bestseller lists are determined. Because this is a very long episode, I only went and did one. Yep. Uh, particularly in this case, the New York Times bestseller list. Hell yeah. Maybe another time we'll look at them more extensively. But this one is particularly important because the New York Times had a court case in the United States in which they told the court that the content of the list is not mathematically objective, <laughs> but instead represents editorial material. So it's protected by free speech. They were sued by an author who claimed that his book should have been on it, but wasn't. So what do they actually do? They keep the details closely guarded as a trade secret, but broadly, they have a selection of booksellers in the United States who send them weekly sales data. This includes both independent and chain stores, though apparently excludes things like Walmart. Right. It's, yeah, right. <laughs> It is also intended to exclude bulk buying of books in order to discourage people from trying to buy their way onto the list. Yeah. And titles which are suspected to do so are flagged with a dagger symbol in the, in the rankings. Or if you allegedly try to do that and you're Ted Cruz, you just straight up get excluded because you're considered to be gaming the system. Yeah. There are a few obvious problems with this. Uh, weekly sales may not represent long-term sales very well. They're inclined to favor books that have a lot of purchases in a short time, which may or may not stick around. Yeah. So if two different books each sell half a million copies, even from these outlets, but one sells bulk of that in three weeks and the other one sells it in three months, those are going to be treated differently, even if they are by, by value of sales, at least equally valuable books. Yeah. The other side is the question of sampling. Because we don't know which outlets actually contribute data to the New York Times ranking, we don't know how representative it is of book sales in the United States, and it's certainly not representative outside of it. So they don't release that information? Nope. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, because uh, 
their argument is that, well, it's a trade secret. If you release that information, it would let people game the system. But this also means that there is no real check on whether or not it's actually representative, right? Yes. So there are other industry industry metrics for book sales that publishers get access to, which may or may not match what the NYT ranking says, or the bestseller list say. Yeah. I can't remember the actual name, but because I, I'm not going to buy into this to have a look at the data directly, <laughs> but there's uh, one in particular which covers like 75% of book sales in the United States. Yeah. And there have been some quite noticeable discrepancies between that uh, the statistics from that uh, consolidation list and the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> this also means that small, independent, or disfavored publishers are less likely to have the books that they list included because they may not have distribution de deals with enough of these sellers to show up. Oh, yeah, of course. This is Yeah, and this has been a particular problem for, let's say, um, niche, particularly in fiction, like niche stuff. Yeah. So uh, queer literature, for example, can struggle to show up on bestseller lists. Yeah, for sure. Well, I remember... Um... Uh, so my favorite writer is Jarrett Kobeck, at least living writer. And mm -hmm. um, I remember him talking about I Hate the Internet. And they had a rule, I think it was the New York Times, that he was like the third person ever to be to get into the review section with the self-published book. And the, and the only reason that he was able to do that is because it didn't look like a self-published book and he had a, <laughs> had a uh, publicist on it. But... Yeah. <laughs> So oh, I did a I did read a, a bunch of articles from like publishers who support and encourage self-published work or small independent ones, and a lot of what they were saying is basically that if you are an independent author, you're basically screwed because unless you can get into one of the big and well-respected publishing houses in the U.S., you're not likely to get on a New York Times bestseller list. Yes, and this includes stuff that's like comes out of other countries. Yeah. And wildly popular stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I asked. Are... <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> well, I... Yep. Well, I find it particularly interesting when this stuff is positioned as editorial content. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's us for the week. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'll talk to you next time. Speak to you then.